Maternal mortality, or what is commonly known as pregnancy-related death, continues to increase in the U.S., particularly among black women and other communities of color. Why is this so? Welcome to Public Health Musings, where we will attempt to answer this question and discuss other related topics. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. Today I'm joined by Dr. Dindi Amaka Amuta Onukaga, who is an associate professor in the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine. She received her PhD in public health with a focus on maternal and child health at the University of Maryland College Park School of Public Health. She also has a master's in public health from the George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services in Maternal and Child Health as of 2005. Dr. Amuta Onukaga also received a BS in Public Health and BA in Africana Studies from Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. She has a long-standing commitment to public health that spans over 15 years of experience. Her current research focuses on maternal mortality and morbidity, health disparities, reproductive health, infant mortality, and HIV AIDS in women of color. She's also a member of the American Public Health Association and currently the co-chair of the Perinatal and Women's Health Committee in the Maternal and Child Health section. She completed her Kellogg Health Scholars uh, postdoctoral fellowship in Baltimore, Maryland. And during that time, she focused on family planning and reproductive health in women receiving home visitation services. She's a former president of the Society of African American Public Health Issues, SAFI, and currently serves on the board of directors for the National Women's Health Network. Since 2018, she has planned and led a national conference on black maternal health inequities. The audience of almost 700 attendees has spanned healthcare professionals, community health workers, dwellers, students, and community activists. It's now in its third year, and the 2020 conference has grown from half a day symposium to a full day conference with speakers coming from the Boston area from across the country. In addition, to her co-chairs and her team of volunteers and advisory members, she provides strategic planning and leadership for the conference and related community-focused activities to ensure that voices of women of color are centered and amplified to address the urgent crisis of maternal mortality and morbidity in the Boston area and around the country. And for more information on her work, you can go to her website at www.dindiamutaphd. Dot com. That's N-D-I-D-I-A-M-U-T-A-H-P-H-D dot com. Welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Kingore. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited to have you on. Uh, I have been wanting to talk to an expert in maternal and child health, ex- especially um, uh, one who's focusing on communities of color. And I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. And I think we're going to have a great conversation today. So j- just to get us started on your profession and your expertise, what motivated you to pursue and stay in the field of public health? 
So I was drawn to the field of public health because I like helping people. And essentially, public health is population level prevention of illness. And so it really focuses on educating people, providing people with access to resources, measuring disease distribution and patterns, and essentially helping to make the world a better place. And that was really attractive to me. I think um, as a public health person, these days and times that we're living in now, there's a really concerted effort to focus on eliminating disparities, reducing inequities, and that also really resonates with me. Awesome. And you have extensive research experience focusing on those key public health topics, um, such as maternal child health and other um, health-related topics. Could you speak briefly about the trends in maternal health as well as infant mortality in the U.S. among women of color? Yes. Um, So right now we are experiencing a maternal mortality crisis for black women in the United States. And essentially, African-American women are 243% more likely to die than their white counterparts from pregnancy-related complications. Uh, What's even more disheartening is that up to 63% of maternal deaths are actually preventable. And so we know that racism plays a huge role in the underlying risk um, and underlying factors that impact women's health and maternal mortality and that black women who deliver in black hospitals and even black women with very high rates of education, so we're talking postgraduate education, college, PhDs, et cetera, are still more likely to experience a maternal death. Um, the impact that we're seeing is not only for moms, we're also seeing a disproportionate burden of black infants dying. And we know that Af- um, excuse me, African-American infants are twice as likely to die than their white counterparts. So these two disparate rates are really troublesome for the United States as a country because we look at the impact of women and children's health as a marker of the quality of services and the strength and vulnerability of a country. And the United States is one of very few developed countries that we're actually seeing the maternal mortality rates rise. And so the United States ranking overall is falling. It is falling and continues to fall. And unfortunately, the black-white disparity in infant mortality has been holding steady at a two-fold increase. So these two markers of really the health of a country and the way that we treat women and children um, are going in the wrong direction for the United States. And we're definitely in a crisis and have been for some time. Indeed. And speaking of those crises, what do you think are the risk factors um, for those two indicators, taking into account those social, cultural, and structural barriers? You started talking about racism. What other factors um, are uh, involved in this? Right. Well, I think, um, you know, definitely socioeconomic status plays a role. We know that for Black women that deliver in Black hospitals, the outcomes are poorer. Um, If you look at the work of Dr. Elizabeth Howe out of uh, Mount Sinai, New York, she does a lot of work looking at the quality of hospitals and where they're located and what that means for women's outcomes. And even in my dissertation research, I focused on the neighborhood and the um, maternal place of residence and what that meant for a woman's likelihood of experiencing an infant death. And I found that for women that lived in higher income neighborhoods that seemingly had more access to resources and to funding and, you know, better health care, we still saw a marked increase in their likelihood of experiencing an infant death. So um, socioeconomic status, um, the quality 
of the facilities and quality of the health care that's received. We know that providers spend less time with women of color in the visit. We know that women of color symptoms and um, pain or any type of um, issues that they may be having in a clinical encounter are more likely to be dismissed or considered to be embellished. And so these things really um, play a role in addressing some of the barriers that women are, are having and experiencing optimal health for themselves and for their children. So given that very grim picture, what can we do uh, to come up with sustainable initiatives, um, you know, at all levels, thinking of the, you know, like the socio-ecological model or that um, <clears throat> looking at different aspects, how can we sus- sustain the current initiatives and maybe come up with novel um, initiatives and interventions? Well, I think there are definitely some opportunities for um, for changing this story and for, for making an impact on uh, the lives of women. And I think, first of all, the, the work has to be led by and for black women. And so when I say that, I mean that in addition to dismantling systemic racism in healthcare systems and in hospitals, um, you know, addressing explicit and implicit bias from providers. We need more women of color in leadership positions in the hospitals and healthcare. Uh, we need more women of color becoming medical doctors or OBs or doulas or midwives. Um, and we need to remove a lot of the barriers for women entering and staying in the healthcare workforce. Um, another thing is we need to address some of the interventions that we know work. So we know that the Alliance for Innovation and Maternity Care. Um, the AIM program has developed bundles, maternal safety bundles that upon successful implementation have been shown to reduce maternal mortality in a hospital setting. So specifically looking at hypertension bundles, hemorrhaging bundles, which are the two leading causes of maternal death. Um, We know that implementing these bundles in a systematic way, making sure that everyone is trained from the hospital, triage, nurses, OB, anesthesiology staff, and how to address these situations if they happen to happen while a woman is in labor, these things can really help to reduce some of the rates. And so the issue is on both sides. We need more clinicians and women of color in the public health and medical workforce, and we also need to address the bias and racism that exists in the medical system while implementing interventions that we know clinically work. You are very right on that. And, you know, another area that, you know, is of interest to you is HIV prevention and treatment. And we know that among women of color, that the rates are also pretty high. Uh, What do you think are the barriers and opportunities to prevention and addressing HIV in, um, in this community? Yes. So thank you for, for bringing that up. So just to, to give some context, we know that um, the majority of female adults and adolescents living with HIV as of 2018 were African-American and that women of color face racial and sexual discrimination, have higher rates of poverty, lower health literacy, and all of these things kind of exacerbate um, their entry into HIV care. And so we know that there's tons of barriers that exist at every stage, right, of the HIV care process that can really play into the socio-ecological framework and really provide opportunities for leveraging the barriers that we see. And some of these barriers are stigma, financial resources, um, you know, levels of knowledge about HIV, a lack of a support network. A lot of the research I do is on mother-daughter communication and social support. And I know that um, for moms 
who are positive, there are some barriers to how they have conversations with their daughters around sexual risk risk um, taking and also HIV and PrEP and PEP and things of that nature and lack of uh, transportation, like women are still facing serious barriers in accessing transportation to get to their appointments. This is obviously pre-COVID, but that's that's something of consideration. Um, lack of psychological support, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, where the opportunities really lie are in some of the same opportunities that we see in the maternal mortality conversation we were having. So one, you know, diversifying the medical profession and adding more healthcare workers, leaders, trainers, epidemiologists, HIV testers to the medical profession. Two, um, patients of color we know are more likely to trust a clinical encounter when they have a practitioner that looks like them or that shares their racial identity. So that's another opportunity. I recently published a paper looking at medical mistrust and looking at the impact of that on patient outcomes. And so we know that when HIV-positive patients or people living with HIV come into clinical encounters, they're more likely to feel comfortable and build a rapport with someone who shares their racial identity. Um, And we know that they're viewed more favorably um, from other practitioners of color or other people of color than white clinicians. Um, And, you know, there's a lack of training, really, uh, for clinicians in medical school regarding racism, implicit bias, cultural humanity. And in the healthcare setting, physicians may unintentionally or intentionally incorporate these biases into into their care. And so... There is a need, really, for additional training um, around communication, around addressing biases for clinicians and healthcare staff to really learn how to better interact with patients. Um, That focuses on emphasizing understanding and addressing needs and complexities of a diverse patient population. And this is really where the opportunity for increasing access to adequate healthcare lies. Indeed. So there's still so much work that needs to be done, especially at the policy level, uh, when we're thinking at that, um, the socio-ecological model aspect. But we'll get into that a little bit later um, in this interview. So I just wanted to talk more about your research work and just to find out how did you go about um, getting your target communities involved? Uh, What was that process like? Did they, you know, welcome you? Um, What concerns do they have? Because we know it's documented how uh, researchers have not been very pleasant to our communities, especially Uh communities of color. So how was your experience and how did you go about doing that? Well, I think the first thing when you're doing research in and for communities of color is that you have to gain trust and you have to gain entree. And for me, um, I completed the Kellogg Scholars Community Kellogg Foundation Community Health Scholars Postdoctoral Fellowship, which essentially trained us for two years on how to do community-engaged research, how to conduct community-based participatory research, and the hallmark of the program and of our training was how to engage with communities. And so I think communities need to know you, they need to trust you, um, and they need to really feel the sincerity of the work you're doing. We know that communities of color are oftentimes overly subjected to research and overly targeted for participation with no real return um, coming back to the community. So I think if you spend time building the proper trust, if you put community members in positions of leadership, if you incentivize people for their time and expertise, 
the community will learn to trust you and you'll gain that entree, but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to come without putting in the proper work. Right. And since you've been doing this for a minute, how have you been able to keep them engaged and interested in your work? Well, um, I work with community partners on a regular and consistent basis. I um, definitely focus my research in and for communities of color. And so I'm visible. I live in communities of color. I'm active in communities. I sit on task force. I sit on coalitions. You know, I make myself available for um, communities and organizations. And I think that's one of the best parts about having an academic community partnership is that the community sees you as a resource. And so I have students um, through my research. I have a couple different studies, but one study in particular is really community focused. It's um, my Wisdom Matters study, which is really focused on increasing health literacy in HIV positive women of color. And so we work with the community, we're working with a particular health center, and um, at the end of the program, when the women had gone through their six weeks in the curriculum, we um, had a graduation for them, and they were able to bring their friends and family, and it was really beautiful because that was, for some, you know, the first time they had, they had graduated from anything, right? A lot of the women didn't have uh, formal education or at least a high school diploma, and so we made it really formal, and we did it up really nicely for them, and I think those types of events really solidify for community for communities that there are people they can trust in the academy and that you know, the resources and the skills that people are bringing to them are actually going to be beneficial. But I think that is a, obviously a case-by-case situation with the PI. But for me, I felt really strongly about making a strong and, and concerted effort to uh, have relationships with communities. And I've done this work in Baltimore and Newark and now here in Boston, and it's the same thread. The thread is trust. The thread is respect and, and transparency. Um, and like I said, putting communities in positions of leadership, I publish with community partners, I have a community advisory board, um, and I'm, people are, are acknowledged and honored for their expertise in those spaces. And so that resonates with people when they feel like they are valued and not being used for research. That's amazing. I think your uh, program that enhances the literacy levels and then allows them to graduate or, you know, they get certificates is something that is so affirming for them uh, because we know how our communities or the, you know, underserved communities can have a certain sense of stigma uh, because they don't feel as accomplished as the society would want them to be, right? Exactly, exactly. No, I think there's there's a tremendous amount of stigma, um, and it really uh, paralyzes women from moving forward. And I think the opportunity to break down stigma and to get people talking and to really normalize a lot of the behaviors that are associated with HIV um, and to also get people to disclose to their friends and family is just life-changing for women. You just can see the freedom and the peace and the happiness really return to them once they've kind of, you know, removed some of these layers that they've been carrying for a long time. Wonderful. And you're also focusing on health disparities affecting women of color. So uh, could you briefly talk about those health disparities um, in that population? And you may have touched on some of them, but are there any additional um, health disparities that you would want to highlight? Um, let's see. We talked about HIV. We talked about maternal mortality and morbidity. Um, 
The only other health disparities research that I that I am interested in um, or that's currently on my radar would definitely be around increasing, um, which is kind of related to HIV, but increasing access to PEP and PrEP for communities of color because I think um, black women in particular are being left out of the benefits of PrEP. And we know that um, PrEP does have a lot of benefits to preventing HIV, transmission, things of that nature. So that's another thing that I'm really passionate about is just increasing awareness and access. And, you know, there's PrEP and PEP are not perfect, but they definitely um, are life-changing um, for people that take them consistently. So that's something else that I'm focused on. And just for the sake of the listeners, maybe we give them a little overview and, uh, you know, the long name of PrEP and PEP. <laughs> Oh, sure, sure, sure. So so PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis and PEP is post-exposure prophylaxis. And essentially, these are two uh, different drugs that you can take to reduce HIV risk and transmission. So one is before exposure and one is after exposure um, to someone with HIV. But they are um, wonderful drugs that are new to the market in the past few years. And we know that in communities of color and black women, they have not um, been implemented and the knowledge and um, access has not been as universal as we've seen in, in other communities. So when you think about, again, health disparities, uh, the barriers and opportunities for ensuring access to adequate health care, um, you know, in, we can talk about racism, the, you know, BLM movement. Uh, what do you think are those barriers and opportunities? I mean, I think the healthcare system overall is um, not particularly sensitive or positioned for the contextual needs of communities of color. And so we know that racism exists and is pervasive within the healthcare system. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement really um, emerged as a way to address the inequities that we're seeing around um, police brutality and the excess use of force um, by police officers. And it kind of goes back to my earlier point around just a lack of representation um, in the decision-making process and a lack of representation in leadership. So in these hospital systems, in these educational systems and institutions, if, if people of color are not in decision-making powers or the people that are making these decisions are not making them uh, with people of color in mind, then these health disparities are going to continue to be um, exacerbated, and that is going to reduce access to adequate health care. We know that Medicaid and Medicare, for all their benefits, are also, you know, really flawed programs that are state-specific. And so you could be in one state and have really great care. You move to another state, and the, and the care is not that is quality. So we as a country definitely have a fractured system that puts the onus on the local government, which can work to people's advantage. But overall, we need federal level policies like the Affordable Care Act to really ensure adequate access to health care and the provisions of that um, patient provider Affordable Care Act, which are unfortunately being repealed and dismantled under the current administration, really um, had tremendous impact. And that's the type of programming, you know, extending people's insurance status to 26, making sure all preventative care is covered, um, things of that nature. Like those are the hallmarks of a functioning healthcare system. And that's where we need to be putting our resources and our attention back into. Awesome. And I'm glad you bring up the policy um, issues. How do you think we can engage uh, policymakers in these conversations about health disparities, especially with the current administration? 
Um, I, I, I think people need to vote in November. And I think we, um, as a country, need to really mobilize around community-based and grassroots organizations that are working to provide care. I don't see the current administration really being able to um, prioritize the needs of vulnerable populations, low-income communities, um, communities of color, and we have not seen those those points of urgency reflected in their um, policies and programs and funding. And so we, even the way that you know COVID is being handled, um, the way that um, information is being disseminated to the public. Um, this administration is is different than the Obama administration in that they are much more focused on dismantling than building programs. And so health disparities are going to continue to be exacerbated. Things are going to get worse. We are definitely um, in a bad economic situation, which we know that economics and public health go hand in hand, um, accessing resources, quality of care. So. Yeah, I, I think people have to vote in November and, and um, take the long view on what we as a country can do. Indeed. And thinking about, you know, the fragmentation of the healthcare system, um, what do you think are the lessons learned where COVID-19 is concerned, especially as it relates to communities of color and women of color? Well, what we're seeing with COVID and Women of color is nothing new, right? The um, inequitable treatment, the disproportionate burden of cases that we're seeing communities of color, uh, we're seeing women of color, people of color on the front lines as frontline workers who are in service delivery positions, who are being considered essential workers, who are blue collar employees and are really bearing the brunt of the illness and the death. And so that's nothing new. Um, and we know that the work of a really dismantling this persistent racial, gender, and economic inequities and other barriers are still there. So COVID has just really highlighted the two pandemics that we as a country are in, the pandemic of the actual disease and the pandemic of systemic racism and the implications of that. And so I think there are uh, lessons that can be learned by, one, really disseminating relevant, accurate, important uh, public health information, getting it out to communities in a timely manner in languages that they understand, um, to really leveraging community partnerships. And going back to what I was saying earlier around grassroots efforts and really mobilizing uh, social justice movements to, to strengthen these, this work in communities that are most affected. Um, and three, you know, ensuring access to equitable testing and treatment. We know that as the pandemic continues to rage and we're seeing hotspots and a lot of the cases and things that are happening now, this is an opportunity for, for us to act quickly and to mobilize additional resources to ensure that the communities that are most hit or hardest hit have equitable testing and treatment um, opportunities still available to them. Indeed. Um, and I think one of the ways is the work that you're doing with the Black Maternal Health Inequities Conference. Could you tell us more about that conference yeah. and what it entails? Yeah. So every April during Black Maternal Health Week, which is the second week of April, um, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which is a national organization working to address maternal inequities, uh, has 
sponsored or has supported the work of, of partnerships around the country. And so in 2018, I had the I led the first ever Black and Children's Health Conference um, here in Boston. I think it's pretty much the only one that was happening in New England, and it's probably one of the largest in the country. The first year we had 300 people in attendance, and then in 2019 we had 400 people. Um, in 2020, unfortunately, because of COVID, we would have had 500 people um, registered or in attendance and coming from all over the country. And so this conference really is an opportunity to bring together different groups of community members, doulas, um, parents, professors, um, clinicians, anyone really who's interested in addressing maternal mortality as a crisis in black women. And so the first year, the focus was on um, the knowledge and building the scientific base. And so we had OBs, we had um, health service directors really sit on a panel and, and bring the audience up to speed on what are the latest clinical interventions happening and what they're seeing in their care and their treatment of patients. Um, and all my speakers are always black women. And so the first year we had four, four black women speakers. Um, and then this second year, 2019, it was really focusing on um, maternal health advocates. And so I had women that had either experienced a near um, death or what we consider in the maternal mortality world as, as a near miss, and that's um, defined as a woman who either had a hemorrhaging event or some other type of complication um, that was um, rectified, and obviously the woman didn't die, so that's a, that's a blessing. But we had maternal health advocates, and we had women that are opening a birthing center, and so the second year was really just about giving voice to maternal advocates, and then the third year, which would have been April 2020, was going to focus on a community-led response, and that conference was really going to focus on the role of doulas in providing care and, and being a, a, an integral part of the birthing process for women of color. And so we are about to start planning our 2021 conference in the fall, which will probably have a focus on policy and legislation. And um, there are a lot of state, local, state, and national initiatives happening around maternal mortality. I actually helped to pass a bill here in Massachusetts um, a few weeks ago with one of our state representatives, Liz Miranda, and some of the co-signers from the House of Representatives, Senator Becca Roush and Kay, Representative Kay Khan, um, endorsed Bill H-4818, which is essentially putting together a time-sensitive maternal mortality commission of 25 members, um, public health professionals like myself, OBGYNs, doulas, community members to address maternal mortality here in Massachusetts. And um, that unanimously passed the House, and now it's making its way through the Senate. And I also have um, edited and given feedback to uh, federal bills from uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren's office and some of the work that they're doing. So there's a lot happening. I recently did a webinar a few weeks ago with Representative Lauren Underwood um, from Illinois, who has introduced the Maternal um, Health Brain Trust Momnibus suite of bills that's happening on a federal level. And so I think the uh, 2021 conference is going to be focused on the policy and legislative implications for, for addressing maternal health disparities. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a great conference. We provide food. It's a full-day conference. We have child care. We have continuing education credits. It's been picked up by the media. Um, it's really well attended, and everything is free to the community. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with COVID by uh, April 2021, but we're planning um, 
to have the conference either way, either in person or virtual, we will have a conference. It just really depends on where we are with COVID. Amazing. I commend you on your work and on, you know, (laughs) getting all these policymakers involved. And um, I think making changes at the policy level really helps ensure sustainability of interventions and campaigns. So, I mean, this is amazing work. And so do you plan to expand this conference to other cities? Um, you know, I would be open to that. I would love to see the conference expand. I mean, it, it's a labor of love. It is a huge undertaking, right, to do the booking and the marketing and the promotions and the food and everything. But I do it for the love. I have an incredible team of volunteers. This year's conference had about 40 volunteers. I had two co-chairs. I have a community advisory board. So it's it's a it's a huge undertaking. But yes, I would love to see the conference grow because I think addressing maternal health disparities is a nationwide conversation. It's not germane just to Boston or to New England. So there are definitely opportunities. And other, um, you know, kindred partners are doing things around the country. A lot of the doula practices and the birthing um, practices that are black women led are actually partners of this conference. And so this is something that um, as a national community, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance is really lifting up those voices. So there might be something already happening in the local area, um, maybe from like a doula practice or, you know, on a smaller scale. But I think as far as academic conferences go, this is probably one of the larger ones, but I would love to see it expand. Yes, I think in some of those states, such as Texas, where we see um, these disparities at really high levels, uh, I think they would benefit from this innovative work. And so, I again, I commend you for this work, and I definitely endorse it <laughs> um, and support you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. So, um, as we thank wind you up, so you're welcome. As we wind up, could you describe some of your most interesting findings in your research work and the public health implications? Well, the most interesting findings from my work, um, I have a couple of different projects. So, let me talk about my mother-daughter study, which is the SHARE study, which is stopping the spread of HIV-AIDS through relationship and engagement. And essentially, I'm working with HIV-positive moms to learn more about mother-daughter communication and how they are interacting with their daughters and having conversations around sexual risk, HIV risk, um, trauma, excuse me, and PrEP and PEP. And what I'm finding is that Uh, Moms who are positive or people living with HIV are not as um, likely to have conversations with their daughter as the daughters might want them to be. And so I think there's a real opportunity there for leveraging this relationship between a mother and a daughter um, and really having honest, eye-opening conversations around HIV risk, but also the moms really serving as ambassadors of health and and really helping um, to steer the daughters towards PrEP and PEP in their sexual decision-making. So that's one thing I'm finding is that there are definitely barriers to moms and daughters having open, honest conversations around HIV and sex. And so that obviously helps, um, doesn't help the daughter, but it does help to further the stigma and the taboo nature that is still associated with HIV. Um, And then in my maternal mortality and morbidity work, I'm seeing a lot of promising uh, findings working with doulas and and really highlighting the role of doulas and really emphasizing, like I said, these um, maternal safety bundles, but also really leveraging community networks and really focusing on um, 
a social justice lens to to address this work, incorporating fathers and partners. And so that's been really nice as well. Wow, that's that's really amazing. I think the work with the mothers and daughters is definitely timing. Um, uh-huh. And I think it's something that can be um, employed in other settings, uh, especially globally. Um, and even with uh, communities of refugees and immigrants, where we know that the conversation of uh, sex is still a taboo and carries a lot of stigma with it. And so I, I, I commend you on that work, and I hope that it can be replicated uh, with other communities as well. Yes, I would love that. So finally, what advice do you have for students who just recently graduated um, in 2020 with all the drama of COVID and racial tensions? What advice do you have for them? Yeah, this is a hard time. Let me just start by saying this is a hard time to be the class of 2020. And um, COVID has forever changed our world domestically, globally. Um, and, you know, there's, all, there's only going to be pre and post COVID. And one thing I would say to the class of 2020 is this is such an incredible time to be entering the public health workforce. It's, it's like, what a time to be alive. It's one of those things where all the training, all the coursework, all the practicum and the applied experiences that you've gotten as a student can really take your career to the next level. And so I am encouraging students, my students, everyone that's on my research lab um, to just really dive right in, whether it's a formal position. I have students or research assistants of mine who have gone on to get jobs as, as contract tracers. Um, and things of that nature, or people who are really focused on doing um, epidemiologic work. And I think it's important to really acknowledge that this is a unique time. Um, I pray that we will get a vaccine for COVID that is safe and will be equitably distri- you know, distributed and that there will be a post-COVID normal. But absolutely, you know, and yes, you're allowed to kind of wallow in the fact that you won't get your senior trips and that, you know, your internships will be virtual and your job interviews will be virtual and you might have to move back home with your parents and all those types of logistical things. But the, the larger issue that I'm saying is a tremendous opportunity for students who are coming out with these fresh skills and these newly developed expertise in public health to really apply it um, in, in a time where it's really needed. There's more than enough work to be done. Hospitals, everyone is overwhelmed. The system is completely overburdened. And so these epidemiologic or program planning and evaluation or research skills are going to be so needed and so appreciated right now. And even if it's not in a formal position, right, it's still something where you can say that you contributed to addressing this pandemic in some type of way. So I would just urge the class of 2020 to really jump in and and create opportunities and carve out roles for themselves that are really going to help to ameliorate some of the burden on the healthcare system. Indeed. I think uh, public health, um, you know, people have taken a different perspective to it um, thanks to COVID. And even thanks to the racial tension issues, uh, when you think about the social determinants of health um, and just people didn't really understand just how these factors are intertwined with health. And so I think 2020 has literally been a classroom, if you will, um, in real life issues. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Awesome. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I definitely look forward to <laughs> to follow up with you and speak with you at another time and see the work that you're doing and all the innovation uh, that you have ongoing. You. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity and a huge shout out to you as well for the work that you're doing and all your contributions to the field of HIV and really for creating a space for for public health people to come together and shape the conversation so thank you for this podcast opportunity and thank you for all the work that you're doing in and out of the classroom i appreciate that yes we we need to hear more about this work um outside yeah. of our publications <laughs> and outside of our glass ceiling conferences um, oh yes <laughs> so that everybody else can oh, have yeah. access to this timely and innovative work that we are doing Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you to the listeners. And uh, we look forward to you joining us again next time.